we continue on in our study of the book of Acts and looking at you know, what it means to become his church, we're in this last section where so much of the section is the persecution that, that Paul personally is facing and what he's been going through. And so he had come back to Jerusalem and he knew, he was warned, you know, things are gonna happen when you get back to Jerusalem. Um, and, and he goes anyways. And then when he tries to do the right thing, he tries to uh, make kind of peace with the Jewish Christians, the new Jewish Christians, who don't really know him and they don't trust him, um, and they're believing the lies that are told about him. He tries to go to the temple with them, and then he's attacked. And he's taken by a mob, and he's accused falsely of all of these things, and as we saw last week, he, he's somewhat protected by the Roman soldiers, but he has an opportunity to speak, and he speaks, and he shares, he shares what Christ had done in his life. He shares the gospel from a very, very personal standpoint, and the um, incredible thing is that the Jewish people are hanging on every word until until he says God told him to go to the Gentiles. And at that point, it, everything erupts again. That's where we're picking up the story in verse 22 of chapter 22. It says, up to this word they listened to him, and the word was the word about the Gentiles. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a long, large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great, great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We need to remind ourselves of this context. Why, when, of all the things Paul said, why, when he mentions that he was sent to the Gentiles by God, why did that just get them so upset? And if you remember what we know from history, we know that, that this is a time of incredible like unrest among the Jewish people. The Jewish people, you know, they, they had just gotten back sovereignty over their land, and then the Romans come. And the Romans have, have been in control for just slightly under 100 years. And throughout all that time, there's, there's different people that kind of rise up, that want to lead these, these rebellions against the Romans to get rid of the Romans and take back their city and take back the temple and take back their land. And it's, it's a political thing, for sure. It's Jewish nationalism, for sure. But it's more than a political thing. It's also a, it's part of their religion. It's part of their, their theology that God had set them apart as the chosen people and he had given them that land, he had given them that city, he put his temple there. They had all of this and that God had given them this, as the chosen people, he had given them the law and the law was to, to, to give them this, this pure and good society. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're now being conquered by the Gentiles, by the Romans. They're reading the scriptures, some of the scriptures that, that you know, we read here, like in Psalms, and they read about you know, the power, their powerful God. And the thing you need to understand about that, that early mindset is, how did you know someone's God was more powerful than your God? Well, you, you beat them in, in battle. You know, if, if our favorite sports teams all had their own religions, they all had their own gods, you know, how would we know which god was the most powerful? Well, who won the Super Bowl? Who won the championship? And that was kind of the mindset. And, and what was weird was, here was this group, this, these people, these Jewish people, who had a history of being, of being defeated. 
And yet, they still claim that their God was not just a great God, a powerful God, everybody said that. He was the God of awe. He was the Lord of lords. They, they, they saw that, that their God, in many ways, was many of them believed was the only God. All these other gods were just superstitions. But their God was the only God. And yet, the thing they couldn't get out of their heads is, we have the only, most powerful God who chose us, and we're still conquered. We still have these Gentiles living among us and in control of our city. And it, it really kind of messed with, their, messed with their minds, messed with their theology. And, and some of them who really cared about this would say, it's because God wants us to rise up and he wants us to wipe them out and we know that if we will, God will give us victory. It was not good theology. It was trying to take what God had given them and then kind of re-structuring kind of it to kind of go along with how the world works. Because how does the world work? Well, the world works, it's all about power. It's all about, you know, in relationships, it's about power. It's about political power. Whether it, it results in open conflict, or as we see today, a lot of times it's, it's power being done through economic ways, different socio-political ways. It's all about power. And make no mistake, modern Christians do the same thing. The overly simplified version of this you see is if you ever watch Christian movies that have sports teams, the Christian team always wins the championship. You know why? Because God's on their side. God would never let them finish second. You know, you're not going to have the bad news bears Christian version unless the bad news bears win the World Series. It's, it's, it's just in our mindset, we think God is on the side of winners. And that when we win, God is somehow, you know, validated. And it always kind of makes me think like, if you have two schools having prayer before the game, what is God like? Man, I don't know what to do now. Both of them want me to help them win. And, you know, and if they win, then it's going to prove that I'm God. You know, God's going to lose either way, right? If either one team's going to go, yes, we did this because God, and the other team lost. And now they're questioning the existence of God. But know that, that this is an intense time of Jewish nationalism. If this is happening around 56, 57, in 70, and really the years leading up to 70, there's going to be a major Jewish rebellion against the Romans. And the Romans are going to fight back hard. So much so that they destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. You see, they did like first class destruction. 
The Babylonians destroyed the temple. Within a hundred years, the Jewish people had rebuilt it. When the Romans destroyed the temple, it still hasn't been rebuilt. Good, 2,000 years. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy the walls of Jerusalem. All of these symbols that the Jewish people thought were of God and God's power and God's might, they're gone. And the Jewish people are going to be scattered. This is coming in just 10, 15 years. And, and even though they have bad theology, they have good reason for being upset with the Gentiles, with the Romans. The Romans are in power. The Romans are, are you know, taking over their, their businesses, their homes. It's, it's not that, that they don't have good reason. But the point is, is that in, it's, it's becoming such this kind of tinderbox moment that you need to declare your allegiance. And if you remember last week, Paul's first statement is, I am a Jew. He declares his allegiance. But later, he's going to say, but God sent me to the Gentiles. And it wasn't good enough. And Paul finds himself in this really tough spot because even though he's a Christian, he is also a faithful Jew. He loves his people. He even writes in one of his letters, if he could give up his salvation and it would mean the salvation of all his people, he would do it. He loved them so much. And he, he talks about how he's exemplary. He went above and beyond what others did. He, he, was, he was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. And we know in their society, the Pharisees were like the superheroes. People loved the Pharisees. They thought they were awesome. They wished they could be Pharisees. They wished their, their sons would grow up to be Pharisees. Paul's a Pharisee. But what cannot exist in their world, what cannot exist is you cannot be a faithful Jewish person and love the Gentiles. Not acceptable. Not acceptable. It, you, you have to choose a side. And, and I don't want to go down this road, and I'm not going to because I want to focus more on the text. But I just want you to know that, there's, that we have this in the modern church today. There's a lot of Christians who are afraid to admit their love for different types of sinners, different types of people, for fear that other Christians will say, just proves you don't want to follow God. They, they, they seem to think that if I love and I accept someone who is living in a sinful lifestyle, that that's tantamount to me saying their sinful lifestyle is okay and it's acceptable. That's, that's not right. It's not right to say their sinful lifestyle is acceptable. It's not right to say that 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 doesn't matter, that you know, God wants us to be whatever we want to be and live however we want to live, that's wrong. But it's also wrong to get upset at people who want to love and minister to those people and we treat them like, like they've now suddenly condoning all of that. 
So we find like that kind of tough spot here today. But what we're really seeing is we're seeing, we're seeing Paul trying to help them understand Judaism and Christianity, they're connected. Not the Judaism that you guys have been practicing. That's wrong. Jesus told you it was wrong. Why? Because you, you removed the heart of it. You removed the fact that your, your obedience to God, your faithfulness needs to be driven and motivated and grounded and saturated in, in, in perfect love for God and perfect love for one another. You've, you've messed it up. But if you will listen to what Jesus is saying and you understand, you will see Christianity and Judaism, true Christianity, true Judaism, are not incompatible. But they don't want to hear it. They're not going to, they don't want to see it. Because they're living in a world that's in some ways similar to the world we live in today. There is this, this unprecedented collision of cultures, collision, collision of, relig- of beliefs, and what's resulted is either the battle for who is right and who is wrong, or the acceptance that no one's right and no one's wrong. In their day, it was still much more kind of in this idea of, of somebody's right and somebody's wrong. But we, in the 21st century, live in an unprecedented collision of cultures. And what we, for the most part, we, have decided is, there really is no truth. We live in a post-truth world. And you might go, well, I don't. Well, yeah, I hope you don't. I hope you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I hope you believe that the Bible is God's truth, his message sent to us. But the world at large lives in a post-truth world. Do these sound familiar? There's some people that will say there's relative truth. It's relative truth. Truth is what you want to make it. Your truth might not be my truth, but that's okay as long as you know, we don't get all upset at each other. The other view is kind of related to that, but it's relative truth is one thing because it's very, very personal, but some people might say there's many truths. Not as much as relative truth. Relative truth would really mean each one of us could have our own truth. Many truths would say, No, a lot of your truths are wrong, but there are a lot that are right. And then where more and more people are moving to is that there is no truth. There is no truth. That how can there be truth? If scientific naturalism has it right, Everything started as a cosmic accident, and everything will end as a cosmic accident. Nothing will last. Nothing that you do will ever be remembered. If you, 
you know, I don't, I don't know how somebody who, who believes in that could ever, like, you know, run a funeral home. Because what are they going to put on the tombstones? Like, they can't put eternal resting place. They're going to have to say temporary place until our son goes supernova. Temporary place to remember your loved ones until our culture is conquered by another culture and they put a parking lot over it. I mean, that's what you're going to have to be honest about. But if there is no truth, if everything is cosmic accident to cosmic accident and everything, you know, more than atomizes, it's a world without hope. It's a world that creates some hope that has no grounding. If we're going to have a world with hope, there has to be some truth that is absolute. Some truth that is eternal. Something that tells us this is right and this is wrong. It's funny because I've grown up in a largely relative relative truth culture. And the more that culture has embraced the relative truth idea, the more legalistic it's become. Not the less legalistic. It's become more legalistic. I not only have to say I agree with you, I have to express the way I agree with you the same way you do. Or I'm not good enough. If I don't you know, wear the right pin on the right day. If I don't, you know, give to the right candidates, if I don't, you know, go to whatever the protest or write what I'm supposed to write to my congressperson, if I don't do it the way I'm supposed to do it, then that's not good enough either. But this is a post-truth world. A post-truth world where power is still the main player. And even those who claim to believe in the truth, a lot of them are not willing to invest their lives to understand it. Oh yeah, I believe God is God and his word is his word and it's his eternal word and it's truth and I'm gonna give it a good five or six minutes a week that I really, really try to study it and understand it, really. You've got the one truth given to you by the one God and you're gonna invest a good five minutes. Good for you. Terrible for the rest of us. If it's truth, it's treasure. And we should treasure it. We, sh we should have, you know, John and I should have people saying, more Bible study, more Bible study, more Bible study. You know, what else can we do? How else can we learn? How else can we grow? I want to know God's truth for all that it's worth, and it's worth an infinite amount. I cannot give enough time. I cannot give enough effort to know his truth. But instead, it's like, eh, you know, I'm better than most. I come Sunday and Wednesday. And some of you are super holy. You come Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and you go to growth group on Friday. Is it the truth? 
Is it worth us putting in the time and the effort to know? You cannot think that's for other people. Because if we cannot see the truth, we cannot see really the kind of the point of this sermon today. We cannot see God's plan. We cannot see his kingdom. And you know, we get distracted. Christmas is, is the time we're supposed to focus on, on Jesus Christ and the gospel and the plan of salvation, but we get so distracted because it's so happy. You know, so many things going on. So busy. And I'm going to say there are some people that have a semi-legitimate reason for not being able to invest more time. And these are people that are just, they're in just tough situations. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's, maybe it's finances. Maybe they just have to work six jobs to make the ends meet. But what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? How much are we going to show the world that God's truth is important to us by how we become disciples of that truth? I happen to think John and I do a pretty decent job of bringing you the word on Sunday mornings. But if you're only eating on Sunday mornings, it's not enough. It's not enough. No matter how much you eat once a week, it's not enough. You know, I do some intermittent fasting, but I've never heard intermittent fasting saying, one meal a week, go seven days, don't eat, and do it again and again and again. And so we live in this post-truth world. Paul is being confronted by the same thing where these people are confused, but instead of most of them gravitating towards relative, they're really gravitating toward there's only this one truth, and their truth is the truth that, that they've believed, this kind of distorted view of Judaism. Well, just like last week, there's this big message, and then there's the message that we see from Paul's example that Luke is showing us. And the first thing we see when we get here is he's, he's kind of the Roman logic. It's like, these guys are so upset. If you look in verse 23, the scholars don't really know what to do with this. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. It just means they were really upset. They were so upset that they, they were taking off their cloaks and throwing them in the air and throwing their soul in a rage. It's kind of the picture. And the tribune is looking at that going, that's weird. And his only conclusion is, this Paul guy must have done something pretty terrible to get them that upset. Ah, we're going to have to whip him to try to get him to tell us what it was. Well, Paul tells them when they're about to flog him, Paul finally says, you know what, I'm a Roman citizen. You really shouldn't do this. You might go, well, why didn't Paul say that earlier? Well, think about it. If instead of saying to the crowd, I am a Jew, he had said, 
I am a Roman citizen who happens to be a Jew. It's the end of the story. He's not going to get to speak anymore. They hate the Romans. If you're going to identify yourself as a Roman citizen to this crowd, they're not going to listen to you. But they listen to him. But now when he's about to be beaten, he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And so he's not beaten. In fact, the tribune and the way Luke tells a story, like they're like, oh, man, they're like backing off. They don't want to touch him because they've already violated the law. What does this tell us about Paul? Well, I think it shows us something about Paul. Paul is willing to suffer for Jesus. He is willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to die for it. But he doesn't seek out suffering just to suffer. And I think that's what we can take away from the church, that if we're going to live for Christ, if we're going to be the body of Christ, There's going to be suffering that comes because of that. But we shouldn't think that just because we're suffering, we're suffering because of Christ. Sometimes we're suffering because we're stupid. Sometimes we suffer because we are stubborn. We don't always suffer for the cause of Christ. But that's what Paul is willing to do. He's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, but he's not going to suffer just to suffer. And really, it's this principle that's come into play. It's always about the gospel, and we're going to see that in, in, a, in a couple more verses, how this comes back to sharing the, the gospel. And what's really at play when we see this is why didn't he share it earlier? It was out of a mercy, a grace to these Jewish brothers. He wanted his Jewish brothers to hear the gospel. So he didn't share it earlier. And he shares it now. And yeah, part of it is because he doesn't want to get flogged because sometimes the flogging would actually kill you. He doesn't want that. But he's now doing it more as a mercy to this Roman tribune and these Roman soldiers. Because if they were to beat him, then they are going to be punished. And we know that Paul is going to share the gospel with whoever. And this certainly opens up this, this, this dialogue he can have with this Roman tribune. The second thing we see is when, the, in, and again, it shows you the, the political tensions because Here's this Roman tribune. He's not even the Roman governor. He's not the most powerful Roman official in that area. He's this Roman tribune who's powerful, but you can see the political tensions. He commands the Jewish leaders to get together. You think they like that? I don't think so. How dare you command us? I mean, one of them is the high priest, for goodness sakes, and he's being commanded to gather He's being commanded to get together with the other Jewish um, leaders. And when that happens, Paul says this thing that we don't really understand, and part of it's because it's not translated well. When Paul says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. 
And the verb that's used there is more the meaning of this word. It means I have fulfilled my obligations. I have fulfilled my office. And one of the reasons that they think that the high priest would, would say, tell somebody to slap him is because he's saying, I have, what I have done is a faithful, perfect way to be a Pharisee, to be a Jew. And by implication, what he's saying is, and all of you should be doing the same thing. I have fulfilled my office. Becoming a Christian, becoming a missionary to Jewish people all over the empire, to Gentiles all over the empire, that is my office, my office. I was a Pharisee. That means it's your office too. And it's offensive. And what the high priest does, which tells you it comes from a, from a, you know, out of arrogance, he actually breaks the law. And he does it in front of other people. He's not doing it privately where no one can see him and it can be a he said, he said situation. No, everybody sees. And apparently Ananias the high priest had a habit of doing this. In fact, what Paul says about him is going to come true. He's eventually going to be killed by his own people. Before that, he's going to be taken before the Roman authorities for abusing his power. And so he, he, he violates the law. He does this injustice. He treats Paul in a way that Paul should not be treated. But Paul doesn't respond in kind. In fact, Paul, with his eyes always on the gospel, speaks in a way to, to be able to share the gospel. And what we see here is this second principle from Paul that, 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 that Paul does what is right, even in the face of injustice. And that's, that's what we should do as church. If we're living out our, the gospel faithfully, and because of that, suffering comes and even injustice comes, if it's for the sake of the gospel, we're going to face the suffering, but in, in any situation, we're going to do what is right. See, what Paul does in his response, when he responds and he says, when they say, did, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What does Paul demonstrate? Paul demonstrates, first of all, that he understands the law. He's quoting from it. Second thing he's, he's demonstrating is that he respects the law because he doesn't continue. He doesn't try to defend himself. He respects the law. What he's doing is he's not building a bridge with Ananias. Ananias hates him. But there's a lot of other people there besides Ananias that are listening, that are seeing how Paul responds 
And notice what he doesn't do. Of all the things Paul says, the only thing that could really be considered offensive is when he says, you whitewashed wall. It's an insult. It's, it meant that it was an insult that kind of lost on us, but, um, but you know, like if, you, if, you, if there was a wall and it was kind of beat up and maybe falling apart, instead of fixing it, you just painted over it, you know. And so he's basically saying you're inside, you're broken, you're crumbling, but outside you have all the appearance of everything looking right and good. But he doesn't walk it back. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, 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 you're really not a whitewashed wall. Because Ananias is a whitewashed wall. He doesn't walk it back and say, God's not going to strike you. Because God is going to strike him. He doesn't walk back the truth at all. But at the same time, he demonstrates understanding, respect for the law. He doesn't go on and on. He doesn't assert his rights because for Paul, it's not about your rights. It's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom. And what we see Luke doing, and we also see Paul doing, is Luke is showing us, here's the people that are following this way. Look at what they are. They're out of control. They're angry. They falsely accuse people. They get so upset. They don't even want to hear the truth. They're going to throw things in the air and jump around like crazy people. And even their leaders who are following this way, they've got this man surrounded. It's at least 70 to 1. And all he says is, I've lived my life to good conscience to this day. And he gets slapped. What Luke is saying to everybody who's reading, who would you rather be? Who looks like someone that you want to exemplify in your life? You want to be Ananias, the powerful guy? Or you want to be Paul? And Paul's doing the same thing. Paul is there in the heart of the beast with all these people who don't really understand. They're upset. Some of them, you know, it's been 20-something years since Jesus. So, you know, they're, they're, some of these people are not the same. Probably most of them. But right there, Paul shows them, here's what Christ has made me to be. I just got slapped for no reason. And this is how I respond. Which one would you rather be? Which one do you really think follows the heart of scripture? Ananias, the guy who abuses his power and breaks the law? Or Paul, the one who respects the law? Which one? He shows this alternative. When we do what is right in the face of injustice, and by right I mean when we demonstrate God's love, we demonstrate the fact that he has 
He has saved us and he's redeemed us and we're there then to help, you know, help others to know. We show the world a choice. When we respond in kind to injustice with our own injustice, we show that we're just like everybody else. Jesus really hasn't made a difference in our life. Then look at what Paul says. Look at what he says when, he, when he's talking about, um, you know, to, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you know, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee and you want to know the real reason I'm here? The real reason I'm here is because I want to talk about hope and the resurrection of the dead. Hope and the resurrection of the dead. That's really why I'm here. It's really why I'm here. And of course, people could argue that that's not really why he's there, that, that there's all these other reasons that he's there, but Paul's really cut to the heart of the issue. And we've talked about this before, so I'm gonna give you the short version, but you know, the two major parties are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the heroes of the people. They keep the law. They work really hard to keep the law. They don't only want to keep the law, they want to keep all the interpretation of the law. But they also are the ones that are driving the revolutionary, the rebellious, let's kick out the Romans and purify our, you know, the city, purify this land. And then you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are a combination of some very powerful, wealthy people and, and the priestly caste. And you know, they're doing really well, even under Roman rule. They have to put up with the Romans, but they've got money, they've got power. They don't want things to change. They're not super interested in living this kind of pious life. They also, don't believe in, in the supernatural at all. They believe in God, but they're more like deists. Like God doesn't really get involved in our affairs. So what we should do is just give in to the Romans and just stay alive, basically. The Pharisees, well, they believe God is actively involved, whether it's through angels or what is coming when they talks about the resurrection. They don't necessarily believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they do believe in the supernatural. That immediately divides them. And some people question, why would Paul do this? Doesn't this stop him from being able to share the gospel? They all got upset, they all were starting to fight, and his answer is, no, not really. Paul knew from the very first thing he said when he gets slapped, he knows that he's not gonna have a fair opportunity to present the gospel. Not here. So that's gonna end. And so he, he says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm really here because of our shared Pharisaic beliefs. What is he doing? He's doing the same thing he did when he talked about the law. 
he's setting up future gospel conversations. Not with the Sadducees there. Sadducees won't let him talk. High priests won't let him talk. But there's going to be Pharisees. Paul doesn't know this yet, but he's about to be imprisoned for two years. And in those two years, he can have visitors. And he's going to have visitors. And I guarantee you, some of those are Pharisees that are at this council. But what does Paul say? Paul says, he talks about the hope, and he's talking about the resurrection of the, of the dead, but he's, he's really getting to the heart of the gospel that Paul knew, that the gospel is, yes, it's about the cross, but it's also about the resurrection. Paul will write in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus Christ is not raised, then we are to be the most pitied of all people because we've put our hope in something that didn't happen. If we're going to be his church, we need to be his church that is a place of hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our own efforts and our own abilities. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just because we believe an event happened in the past, but we believe that because of that event, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can with confidence say, we, when we become Christians, are resurrected and we're given new life in Christ. It is no longer about me or my efforts. It's about Christ alive in me. That's the hope for the world. That's the part that so many Christians don't understand. They think the hope is for themselves, for their own life to be good, for them to have purpose, for them to go to heaven when they die, and they think that's all the hope is, and yes, all that's true, but that's not, that's not the end of it. It's the hope for the entire world. The world will never be able to get along, will never be united, not in a way that doesn't involve incredible force and power. It will never happen unless Jesus Christ can make dead hearts alive, that he can give us what we cannot do on our own, I don't care how much good intentions you have to try to love. You cannot love the way God says we should love. And the last point we get is from this, that last verse. When after all this has happened, he's, he has another vision from God and God says, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. Paul, in chapter 19, had said he resolved to go to Rome. But it doesn't say he, be he believed that, that God told him you're going to Rome. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Rome. That's my plans. My, I'm set on that way. But I'm pretty sure when he's in Jerusalem, he's starting to question that. So why now does God finally say you're going to go to Rome? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is Paul needs it now. He needs it now. 
He's just gone through all this persecution and now he's going to spend two years in Caesarea. But the second reason is if Paul wasn't imprisoned and God had said, you're going to go to Rome, Paul might have gone, oh, well, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Just go to Rome, it's closer. Or I'm going to make my own way. While Paul's in prison, the governor is waiting for him to bribe him. So he, he's waiting for money. And if he gets money, Paul's going to be released. Paul might have said, you know what? Let's just come up with the money so we can get out of this prison and I can go to Rome. I'm going to do it my way. But God confirms for him, you're going to go. And when he does, he shows Paul, my plans for you, and really my plans for the world, are bigger than even you think. Bigger than what you can see. Paul's about to testify. He's going to share the gospel with two different governors, with the king, with the queen, with the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, with the, the emperor's personal army. He's going to share the gospel with every single one of them. And he's going to do this while imprisoned. And people believe he's eventually going to stand before the emperor himself and share the gospel. He's also going to be sharing with Jewish leaders. He's going to be sharing with church leaders. He's going to be writing letters. He's going to be writing letters that have been read for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. We still read those letters today. Paul didn't know this. Paul just knew be faithful. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what he's doing now. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know what he's preparing us for. All we know is be faithful in doing what we know. And here's what we know. Be a disciple. Study God's word. Live out the gospel that we know. Share the gospel. It's not complicated. Be faithful, and then as God gives direction, follow. Verse 